Aren't you thankful for that message today? There's nowhere, no state that is further from the reach, that is too far for the reach of the grace of God. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, thank you for your grace that reaches to the extreme extent of everything. Oh, thank you, God, that you did not establish a relationship based on our ability to deserve your love, for we could never do that. If it were not for your grace, none of us would be here in a relationship with the living God. But we thank you, Father, that you love us because that's who you are, that you choose to love us. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that it changes lives. We thank you that you, Lord, the power of God, are the one who changes us. I pray that we will cooperate with everything that you want to do in our lives. Father, not fight against you, but join in advancing the work of Christ in our lives. And so we pray to that end this morning as we look into your word. We ask, Father, that, that as we once again spend time gazing at the glory of Christ, that our lives, our behavior will be shaped by the truth we find there, that our, our hearts will be inclined to give over full surrender, Lord, to your lordship in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we continue to work our way or walk our way through the gospel of Mark. Would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1? We started with the first 13 verses last week, but we have some work to do today because I want to look at verses 14 through 45. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 45. After John was put in prison, Jesus, I, I want to pause on that phrase just to let that soak in for a few moments. We're going to spend some time there, but after John, Jesus, think about that. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. 
the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching? And with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Well, this is the word of God. I suspect you feel the same way as I do, but I find myself unsettled regularly and mystified whenever there's an untimely tragedy or a, a, a sudden death or a grave illness that from a human vantage point seems to interrupt the advancement of God's work. Do you ever... Do you ever look at those situations and say, is God seeing what I'm seeing? Because this doesn't seem to make any sense at all. Why would God let this happen to this person when they seem to be so strategic in the work of God? Well, it hit me again as I was reading this text. After John, we're talking about John the Baptist now, was put in prison... And I stopped and I thought about that and I thought, wait a second, John the Baptist, he, he, was, he was accomplishing some pretty significant things for the kingdom of God. I, I mean, he himself was, was um, leading an epic revival. I mean, when you look at, at Mark chapter 1 verse 5, it says there the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. All the people of Jerusalem went out to him. 
Can you imagine? I mean, we, we could only imagine here if, if we could write the story. Well, Rick was preaching today, and all the people of Oshawa came to hear him. I mean, can you imagine? And then he was put in prison. We'd be like, what in the world? What, God, why would you do that, God? I mean, not only that, but we read in the other Gospels where John the Baptist had recruited two energetic, lively Galileans by the name of Andrew and John to follow his teaching and follow the message as forerunner of the Messiah. If that isn't enough for his resume, he was courageously calling out political corruption around him, which is why he ended up in prison. You remember the story of Herod, who was having an immoral relationship with his sister-in-law. And John called him out. And I read here, after John was put in prison, actually, if you translate the words exactly, you know what it says here? After John was handed over. After John was handed over. It's an important hint for us of what's going on here. And what's going on all the time. That phrase, handed over, isn't random, is it? It doesn't sound accidental. It sounds planned. In fact, you're going to encounter that phrase handed over several more times in reference to Jesus. Jesus was handed over. You see, um, there, although, although I never get used to it, and I, I suspect you never do, although I never get used to the fact that, that there are untimely tragedies and deaths that I don't understand and grave illnesses that seem, seem to take people out of the action that per, find, I find perplexing, and I never get used to it, there seems to be a divine blueprint that overlays everything. <laughs> and overrides all human perspective and all human plans because it is the master's ministry plan of world events. You see, John the Baptist's mission was to become the forerunner of Messiah. His mission was complete. And until the forerunner went off the scene, there was going to be a competitive voice out there, a, a, another voice. It was time for Jesus. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. When John was handed over by the divine providence of God, then Jesus comes on the scene proclaiming the good news. So when you can't see, and we usually can't, what is going on, we can Take comfort in the fact that God is in charge of his world and in charge of his ministry master plan, and everything happens according to his plan. In fact, the hinge phrase between 14 and 15 is found next. The time has come. God's timing. You know, we think of an untimely death or a tragedy like that of God's people as something that's really, really hard for us to take. And we understand that because it removes someone from us. But, but from God's perspective, 
He's just simply taking one of his choice servants and changing a dress. He took John the Baptist, and when John was beheaded, John moves closer to God. He brings him into his eternal presence. For us, it's, it's like a horror. It's a horrible thing. But no, it's not. But God has our assignments for us, and, and he just, just switches addresses, moves us closer to him. So I want to share with you the commanding presence of Jesus that I see in these verses today. There's just something about that man. There's just something about Jesus. And, and the searchlight is now moving off of John and moving on to Jesus, which John already conceded. I'm not worthy to unlatch the guy's sandals. He, you know, I must desist and he must, or I must decrease and he must increase. John had already stated this. So after John is handed over, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. John came preaching, uh, verse uh, 4, chapter 1. But Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of God. And the time has now come. What's he talking about? Well, history, culture, the calendar, global infrastructure, geopolitical uh, settings, um, scriptural alignments, and the players have all converged into God's moment for Messiah. That's what it means. It, nothing, nothing sneaks up on God or accidentally shows up on God. The time had come for Messiah. And Jesus is now on mission. And so I want to show you three things here this morning. First of them is this. In Jesus, God's new world is breaking into the present. Jesus now, being the central theme of the gospel himself is offering to us a deci decisive display of God's dominant rule and reign on earth. Now, you have heard me use this phrase many times, and I want it to become almost a household phrase with you. God's eschatological work, eschatological reality, breaking into the present. The age to come breaking into our present time. The age when there'll be no more sickness, no more tears, no more dying, no more Satan, no more evil, no more wickedness, no more hardship, breaking into the present time. Whenever something miraculous happens, whenever God saves someone, whenever healing comes, whenever um, God demonstrates his great power to help us, that's the age to come breaking into the present. And Jesus here is the model of what that looks like. When God breaks into the presence. In other words, that's why Jesus said the kingdom of God is near. That's the break in of God's kingdom into the present. So near, <coughs> excuse me, so near, Jesus is saying, you can reach out and touch me and you're touching the kingdom of God. That's how near it is. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's the message of the good news of the gospel. God is king. That's what Jesus came to proclaim. <coughs> Everybody, everything needs to realign around that reality. Jesus is serving notice 
that God is king. The kingdom is near in Christ Jesus. So decide which kingdom you'll be a part of. Commit, repent, submit, trust. The waiting is over. The gospel is here. Jesus is, to put, is here to put things right and to vanquish the enemy and to release the captives. Now, for the materialists and the earthbound among us, God is always a surprise, always a scandal, and always an inconvenient imposition. But for those of us who love him and understand who he is, and understand what Christ can bring. We love him. We glory in him. So many of us, many people are asking the question, well, if God is king, and if the kingdom of God is near, why is the world the way it is? Why is it such a mess? I mean, we turn on the news last night, or you go home and turn on the news, get home, watch CNN after church. They'll be talking about the poor people who were shot in Virginia Beach. We ask the question, if the kingdom of God is near, why are people still in their world freely mainlining satanic ways? Why are, are Christians in this world the most persecuted of all people? Why are more Christians dying in the world today uh, at, at the hands of persecution than any other race or kind of people in the world. Why is that happening if God is king, if the kingdom of God is near? Why, if the kingdom of God is near, are, are so many uh, so-called believers so enculturated, so entrenched in today's culture, having one foot in the world and attempting to have one foot in the kingdom of God? Why are these things happening? If the coming of Messiah teaches us anything, it teaches us that God does not appear to be in a hurry to bring him the final conclusion to his, this age. And we have it on good authority. Remember, I shared with you last week that the Apostle Peter collaborated with Mark to write this gospel. Well, let's let Peter's words explain to us why, if the kingdom of God is near, things are the way they are. Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and following. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Peter then goes on to say this. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Have you forgotten history, Peter said? Have you forgotten the decades and decades when faithful Noah proclaimed the good news of God to people who refused to listen? And everything went on as if God was unable to, to dominate his world? Do you, have you forgotten this? Have, have you forgotten the preaching and proclamation of judgment back then? 
Have you forgotten that judgment did come eventually? By the same word, he says, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, <coughs> being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Now, here's the key. Listen. He is patient with you. That's a thank God moment. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But, Peter says, mark my word. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Our God is not in a hurry to finally consummate what it means to finally be in the kingdom of the final, the final form of the kingdom of God. And those who impatiently fail to embrace this will find themselves on the outside looking in for all eternity. So heed the message of Jesus. God is king. The kingdom of God is near. Reach out and receive Jesus while you can. And then Jesus goes on to say, now here's the message. Here's the right response to the fact that I've Proclaim the kingdom is near. Here's the entrance expectations of those who are counting on being in the kingdom of God. It's not complicated. It's not hard to understand. You don't have to go through some strange rituals and gyrations. It's a simple message that Jesus brings. And it is this. Repent. And believe the good news. That's it. The entrance requirements to the rebellious, to the proud, to those who resist change in their life, to those who blame their failures on everybody else, to those who claim they have no sin. Whoever you are, it's the same message. To every human being that ever walked the face of this world, repent and believe the good news. That's the message of Jesus Christ. It was then, it's the same message this morning. Preachers who are proclaiming the truth are stating the same message today as Jesus proclaimed 2,000 years ago. Repent and believe the, God, the good news, the gospel. And I want to break that down for you this morning because it's critically important that we understand that this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of our entrance into the kingdom of God. This is... What, it, what is required of us. Repent means to turn your back on something so that you're able to fully embrace something else. That's why there's an order to this. Repent and believe. There's a systematic order. Turn your back on something that you might be able to embrace something else. All powered by God, all empowered by God, all enabled by God. 
The message here of repent is change your mind about God and sin. Literally, turn from embracing sin and self and Satan and turn, reject that. This is what repentance means. And turn to the living Christ and believe the message. My concern in terms of this teaching of Christ and this word repent, which literally means change your mind about God and sin, is that there are a number of people who, are, who regret the consequences of their sin, but have never embraced the idea that repentance means you actually hate your sin. You view it the same way God views it. So when we ask the question, can I come to God's kingdom and keep my favorite sins? The answer is, that's feeble, folks. The first service shouted it out at me. What's wrong with you? Can you keep your favorite sins? And, okay, you don't even have to finish the question. No, absolutely not. Otherwise, you haven't repented. Repentance is is to hate sin because God hates it. To, to view sin the way God views sin. Not just to simply be sorry for the mess that it's got you in. But to, to ash actually hate sin and what it does to people and what it's done to you and what it does to God. I'm going to jump back to a, an era before us and quote for you from the West Minster Confession, because it's well stated in term, under the topic of confession of faith, chapter 15 of Repentance Unto Life, section 2, in case you want to hunt it down yourself. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, I know it's phrased a little complex, but stay with me. Under Repentance Unto Life... By it, in other words, a confession of faith and repentance, by it, a sinner, out of the sight and sense not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sins as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all his ways, in all the ways of his commandments. So the full scope and orb of repentance is to not only grieve over the consequences and mess that sin gets you into, but to actually acknowledge its odiousness and filthiness and to loathe it and turn to God for rescue and release from captivity to sin that you might not sin against God again. That's the ongoing reality of repentance as it's understood in the scriptures. So Jesus says here that repent and believe. 
Repent, then believe what is claimed is actually true. Who I declare that I am is who I am. While you can, get in on this, Jesus is saying. Uh, God is marching to final victory with or without you. So repent and believe the good news. Turn to God and finally be able to believe, enabled by God to believe what you previously were not able to see, what you were not able, previously able to understand or embrace, which moves you to trust, which moves you to action. You see, the, doubt, the demons believe, you're going to see in a few moments, the demons believe Jesus is who he claims to be. But they are not moved to righteousness. They are not moved to change in behavior. So this believe actually moves to trust, and trust moves to action, a change. And the core essence of what we believe is the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the good news? Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 1.16 and told them definitively what the good news is. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. You catch that? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And he says, this is what the gospel is. The good news is... God has power to save people who believe. That's the good news. Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. <clears throat> have you done that? Have you embraced that? Have you, have, you, have you rushed to Jesus for salvation? The power of God for salvation. The gospel reveals a righteousness from God, which is first to last by faith. It is not through our efforts of self-righteousness or any religious ritual. It is the declaration by God's grace of our salvation. He declares us righteous. He gives us his righteousness. That's the good news. And saves us. So, Jesus, in Jesus, God's new world is breaking into the present. Jesus brings the message of repent and believe the good news. But thirdly, I want you to notice in the remainder of these verses, God's spirit-empowered kingdom serves notice every day that the world is under new governance. That's what Jesus, in these, this is what Mark is, is seeking to portray in the early part of his description of Jesus, that God has served notice that there's a new, that, that that the world is under new governance, that the kingdom of God transforms the cultures of this world. And Jesus intends to show us what the break-in of this kingdom looks like in this world. It releases people from captivity. It brings people to health. It saves people from damnation. It chases people who are demon-possessed. It chases demons out of people who are demon-possessed. It evicts Satan from the work of God. Jesus emerges from the desert, victorious over Satan, and now serves notice on what it means to be walking in the kingdom of God. Here's what we're about to notice. We're about to notice that what Jesus chooses to command is so. 
we're about to notice that who Jesus calls follows him. We're about to notice that what Jesus claims, or, or when Jesus claims obedience, obedience occurs. When Jesus speaks, things happen. That's what we're about to notice here. That's who our Christ is. When the Spirit of God is poured forth, there is action that happens. And the mission of Jesus was not simply to be some sort of lone prophet bringing to us eschatological truth. The mission of Jesus was to call a community of people around the good news of the gospel. And we today are testament to the success of the mission of Jesus Christ. Amen? We gather here 2,000 years later and all over the globe today, Christians are gathering as testament to the success of the mission of Jesus Christ to call a community of people who love him and serve him and worship him and praise him and tell everybody about him. That's the message of the gospel. <coughs> Rather than set up some sort of interview booth at a local university, Jesus takes a stroll along the shore of the Sea of Galilee to look for recruits. He doesn't look for a sign-up sheet or volunteers. That's not how Jesus functions. You, weren't, you didn't sign up on a sheet of paper. You didn't volunteer for the kingdom. Jesus came calling you, and you responded to him, just like the first disciples have here. I want you to notice here that those who are called follow Jesus. Notice verses 16 to 20. <coughs> As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee... He saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. See, that's what fishermen do. They fish. And so he says to them, come follow me. And you know what really caught my eye is this. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Mark is, Mark is painting a very, very significant portrait of Jesus and his authority. And so it is in our lives. And, and I want you to see a couple of things out of this, this call on the disciples. And the first is this. Jesus says, follow me. That's an unusual statement. You see, the prophets that had come along in the ages before had spoken a message whereby they, asked, they called on people to follow God. They didn't ask people to follow them. You never hear me on a Sunday morning come in and say, now I want you all to follow Rick. And we preach a message of follow Jesus. But Jesus comes with a message of follow me. Now that must have struck a different chord in their hearing because they all thought he was a prophet. They all thought he was a good teacher. But no good prophet and no good teacher would ask people to follow him. So when Jesus says follow me, he's making a statement of divinity. He's declaring, as the prophets of old called on you to follow God, today the kingdom of God is near. You can reach out and touch it. I am he. Follow me. I'm the one that all the prophets had always called you to follow. I'm the one that all the preachers henceforth will call you to follow. I am the one. Follow me. And he goes to these first disciples, and we get to see what repentance really looks like. Now, Simon and Andrew, um, Andrew had been following the teachings of John the Baptist, but he has a brother named Simon, who we later know as Peter, 
<coughs> because Jesus renames him. And they're casting nets, we see, from the shore, which means that they were a couple of poor fishermen. Because if there's any fishermen here this morning, you know that the real catch is when you get yourself in a boat. Generally, fishing from the shore, when, when you're talking about a lake or a sea or something like that, is not found on the shore. That's not where the good fishing takes place. Now, they're just throwing nets on the shore. And occasionally, of course, the big fish come in to eat the little fish. But mostly little fish are on the shoreline. And so these guys are, are poor fishermen, Jesus calls them. And then he goes on and he sees James and John. And John had been following the teachings of John the Baptist. And he calls them. It says, though, that they were in a boat. Not only were they in a boat, they were in the boat of their fathers. And not only that, there were hired men in that boat. We're talking about a mega business fisherman. This, this guy's got an enter The Zebedees have got an enterprise going. And, and the hopes and dreams of the business, from Zebedee's perspective, lay in his two sons, John and James. That's what was going to keep the business going. And Jesus has the audacity to call these two guys to come and follow him. They get out of the boat, say goodbye to their father, quit the business, quit the family business, and follow him. Now, this is a message of the authority of Jesus when he commands and calls. But what I love about these guys is, is in terms of, of discipleship, they left every security I mean, Peter walks away from his job of getting fish, and he had a family to support. How do I know that? Because later in the text, what did we, did we read something? How do we know Peter had a family to serve? You're a class right now. You, know, you, can, you can answer. He had a mother-in-law. Excellent. If you have a mother-in-law, it means you have a wife, because that's how you inherit a mother-in-law, through inheriting a wife. I'll stop there. And you have a mother-in-law. So he had, he had a family to take care of. They left every security. They were reliant on their jobs, depended on their jobs. When Jesus calls, disciples follow. That's how it works. But I also want you to notice here, he said to them, I want you to become fishers of men. Fishers of men. Now, remember I whistled to you the... Uh, theme song for Andy Griffith last week. I won't regale you with that again, because I, even by popular opinion, I never did get anybody asked me to do it again. I won't regale you that, with that again, but when they heard fishermen fishing for men, here's what they heard. In Jeremiah chapter 16, verses 14 through 16, however, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When men will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites out, out of Egypt, but they will say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them to the land I gave their forefathers. Now listen, but now I will send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will catch them. And after that, I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt them down on every mountain and hill and from the crevices of the rocks. The context of this is the final gathering of Israel, the final kingdom. Now Jesus, Messiah, has come to say, the moment is upon us. 
And he's using language, <coughs> excuse me, of gathering the people. Now, by the way, the context here is gathering the people in like fishermen or like hunters to go to judgment. But Jesus is saying, no, I- I'm bringing judgment upon the world, but the people that I'm netting, the people that I'm, I'm asking you to go and net are being rescued from judgment and bring them out to me. Because you see, as every fisherman knows, fishing abruptly changes the future of the fish. Is that true? It changes fish. Now, of course, the portrait of what's going on in your mind is they're dead. When you take fish into a net and then you eat them. But we will all agree that fishing abruptly changes the future of fish. That's the message here. We're rescuing people and we're going to abruptly change their horizon. And in a sense, they will die to themselves and follow me. And I will dramatically change their future. That's what I'm calling you to do, guys. And as I did in the the morning, I've run out of uh, time, but I want to share with you that as much as Jesus called and commanded people to follow him, and they did, in the rest of the section here, he came to bring order from disorder. Remember, as the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, we discovered that last week, and the picture was the same as creation where the Spirit of God hovered over the, the disorder of the elements and order was brought by creation, by the Word of God, so is Jesus now serving notice that a world that is in disarray and in disorder under the clutches of Satan is now going to be brought into a certain amount of order by Jesus Christ. And he demonstrates that he has the authority to dismantle the kingdom of Satan as he casts out a demon in the synagogue. He demonstrates as well that he has the authority over to heal every sickness as he goes into the home of Simon and Andrew. And there finds Simon's mother-in-law sick in bed with a fever. Uh, I would encourage you to note that in Deuteronomy 28, verse 22, the people who were observing the mother-in-law with a fever would have been observing her through the lens of the Old Testament. And in the, in, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 28, 22, a curse for disobedience against God included a fever. And so from their perspective, they would have seen this mother-in-law, and fever was nothing to, you know, today we heal fevers with antibiotics and all that kind of stuff, but a fever was nothing to, to shirk at, at in, in 2,000 years ago and often led people into death, and still does today. When Jesus reached out and touched Simon's mother-in-law's hand, and she stood up to health, Literally, they were seeing Jesus having to forgive her of her sins before she could ever be healed. And she stands to her feet, and we know that she's entirely healed because she goes in and starts serving them food. That's what mother-in-laws are supposed to do. 
And, and she serves them food and now is put back in ministry. And Jesus demonstrates, and he's going to demonstrate it in a more, even a more powerful way or a, a clearer way uh, in, the, in, the, in what we're going to look at next week in Mark 2. But then he also, one more thing, and then we're, we're finished. One more thing is a leper came to see him and said, Lord, said, Jesus, if you are willing, you could, you could heal me. Now, we need to know something about leprosy as well. We need to know that if you were to look, look back in the text in Numbers chapter 12, verses 10 through 13, you'd encounter the story of Moses' sister Miriam, who spoke out against the leadership of Moses and lepre- leprosy fell upon her. And her brothers Aaron and, and Mo- or Moses was calling out to the Lord, O oh Lord, please don't let my sister be like a stillborn baby. Because leprosy was was a state of walking death then. When you were a leper, you were excluded from the community. You were untouchable. It was, it was a living death. You, you were ostracized entirely. And Jesus does the unthinkable. He reaches out his hand and he touches the untouchable and lifts him to his feet and heals him completely. Once again, to an Old, to an old Testament, New Testament transition audience, demonstrating that Jesus had not only had the power to heal, but had the power literally to raise someone from the dead. And Jesus is serving notice here that when the kingdom of God comes near, the sick are made well, the demon-possessed, the demons are evicted from that person, those who are in captivity to sin are released from their captivity, those who who have, are aimless, are, are given, uh, are given um, direction in the kingdom of God. Those who are distressed and discouraged and dismayed and lonely are brought into a relationship with a living God who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus came to serve that kind of notice. And I leave with you this morning simply once again to, to urge you. I don't know your heart condition here this morning, but I do know that Jesus, the same message Jesus offered 2,000 years ago is the message he is offering you this morning. Repent and turn to him. Repent and believe the truth. Believe the good news and you will be saved. It's the same message today that Jesus is offering to you. Reach out and embrace Christ The kingdom of God is very near. Receive Christ today, and you will be brought into the kingdom of God. That's the message. And and simply put, I I leave with you what what at the end of verse 45, it says this, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. And that's what people are still doing today, coming to Jesus from everywhere. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. We love him. We know what he has done for us how much he means to us, Lord. We just thank you for your grace. We thank you for the love of Christ. We thank you that you enable us to turn from the way we are living to the way we could live in Christ. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that has not done that, I'm encouraged by the simple fact that when Jesus calls, people follow. And so we call and ask that you Lord Jesus, might be pleased to call someone or several people here this morning who have been resisting the truth, but today they hear it, today they understand it, today they're turning to you.
to believe in the good news for Jesus' sake. Amen. Stand here in your presence, acknowledging the truth of your word, the power of Jesus Christ to break strongholds. Lord, I pray for my sister here who has come forward. As promised, we would pray over her and ask you, Lord, to help her, strengthen her, deliver her. I pray, oh God, that uh, for those who were not bold enough to come forward, I pray that you will grant them the boldness to say no to sin, to view it through your eyes, through your heart, to claim victory over sin because that's what you have given us in the power of the Holy Spirit is presence in our lives. And Lord, I pray as well for those who you may choose to call. The heartening reality for all of us is who you call follows you. So I pray, Lord, that no one would leave here and seek to fight your voice, but would embrace it. The kingdom of God is near. As near as the touch of Jesus Christ, reach out to him. Touching him is to touch the kingdom of God. And I thank you, O Lord, for your salvation through Jesus Christ and our citizenship in the kingdom of God. And I thank you, Lord, for every break-in of the age to come, which reminds us and encourages us and bears witness to the fact that God is king over this world. And we praise him and thank him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.